Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, as we continue our study in this book of beginnings. Last week, we saw God's crowning gift and blessing to Adam in the garden. What was it? The creation of a partner and friend in Eve, someone to enjoy God and God's blessings with as they represented God on the earth and as they ruled and uh, had dominion. And then having made her, God brought them together in marriage. And so I'm tempted to title this sermon, What Happened on the Honeymoon. In Genesis 3, we find it didn't go so well. And instead, we see one of the saddest and most ruinous moments in human history. And so, uh, turn with me to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. We're studying what is called the fall of mankind, but in less technical language, we're looking at why our doors have locks on them, and why we have insurance policies why we have hospitals, why we have police officers, why we have soldiers, why we have nightmares, why we cry, why we get angry, why we hate, why we get sad, why we go to funerals, why we are afraid, why we are ashamed, why we lie, and why we hide. (laughs) That's what we're looking at. And so let me invite you to consider God's word from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, tree, uh, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves loincloths. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and everlasting word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be our teacher tonight. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to see clearly what your word teaches. We ask, O Father, that it would be sobering to our souls that we would hear its message, that you would grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and we ask that you would hold Jesus up before our eyes. 
that we might have great confidence in him. For we pray in his name. Amen. The world is not as it ought to be. And we are not as we ought to be. A teacher friend of mine was sharing how uh, she overheard a fifth grade student who was walking through the hall, passing out of music class to another, carrying a violin bow. This little fifth grader was overheard to say, the desire to misuse this is unreasonable. (laughs) I'm not sure who he was planning to hit with it or what he was planning to do with it, but he just had the urge, right, to not use it for what it was for. We all feel that way, and we all do that with the, the body God gave us and the tongues that God gave us and the heart and the created things. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. And why is that? Genesis 3, Genesis 3 begins the Bible's answer to that, along with later in Genesis 3, what God will do about it. And the rest of the Bible fills that out. So we're in the book of beginnings. What's, what's wrong with this world? And the answer of Genesis 3 is sin, rebellion. And I want you to think about the four things we see tonight about sin from this passage. I want you to see its offense, its rebellion, its deceitfulness, and its consequences. I want you to think about these four things tonight. I want you to see, in verses 1 through 3, in the dialogue with Eve and Satan, I want you to see the offense of sin. There's a serpent's question and Eve's answer here. In the first place, at verse 1, we're introduced to a new character in the Bible, the the serpent there in the garden. And we are told explicitly that God is sovereign over this serpent. God made this serpent. The sovereignty of God is emphasized by that fact. He's over this creature. Its appearance on the scene is no accident. And events have not suddenly spun out of God's sovereign control. And and this reminds us at the very beginning that that evil is not self-existent. It hasn't always existed. It's not co-eternal with God as if in the universe there's always been a good God and then some evil thing that is an eternal and everlasting rival to him. Uh, No. The serpent, it says, is God's own creation as all things are, visible and invisible. Evil, then, is the rebellion of the creature against its creator. And yet no attempt here is made to explain the history of this serpent, or why it is that he can talk, or how he came to be this way in God's universe. He's simply there. And since God doesn't bother to tell us his origin, not here at least, it must not be worth our time worrying about that, at least at this early stage of the story. And so we're not going to dwell on that part of the story. Now, the serpent speaking is unusual. This should have been a bit of a red flag, we think, to Eve, that a creature was speaking to her. It's not often in the Bible that creatures do that. I can think, of course, of perhaps some of you are thinking of Balaam's donkey who spoke at one point, but that was unusual. This is not a normal experience. And that's a reminder, friends, that something strange is happening here. What is it that's going on here? Well, 
the rest of the Bible does give us hints and it does make explicit what's going on here. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, listen to the end of the, the book of the, of the Bible. Revelation 12, verse 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The book of Revelation makes clear that what's happening here is Satan is at work. Now, the serpent is either Satan in disguise or Satan is possessing the serpent. So it's a snake that's being possessed or there's something else going on here we don't know. But behind this physical creature that looks like a snake or a serpent, it's the the same word, Satan is, is obscuring himself as he seeks to do damage. To this first couple. And as the New Testament tells us, he masquerades as an angel of light. This is, this is no surprise. If you have ever met the devil, you wouldn't know it by looking at him. You're more likely, the Bible suggests, to think he's good. He's almost angelic. He says a lot of true things that are really persuasive. And you might come away with having a pretty good opinion of him. But of course, that's part of the strategy in deceiving us. C.S. Lewis depicts this well in his stories in the Chronicles of Narnia. The witches in the Chronicles of Narnia, they are extremely beautiful. And they entice the children to do what they want through the offer of pleasure, through Turkish delight, And through cunning and soft persuasive speech, far more than by the exercise of intimidation. If a wolf wants to devour a sheep, what better strategy than to clothe himself with sheep's skin? Is it too hard for you to believe in a real devil? That's just what he wants. To hide his influence by hiding his existence because he is crafty. But you must know this according to the Bible. You must know this. A powerful fallen angel hates you and seeks to destroy you. He despises you because he hates God and he can't touch God. But he is seeking to hurt God And he's doing it by means of seeking to hurt God's creatures and God's world. And especially those made in God's image. And so he seeks to have humanity join in a rebellion against God. So that's what you have here, friends. And if you don't know that, then you don't understand one of the most important things about the world in which you live. There are unseen spiritual forces that seek your destruction. And so this serpent speaks to Eve. Engage in conversation. And already there, we see one of the effects of sin. It, it makes us less human, in a sense. How so? Adam and Eve were created to rule the creatures. And now what's going on? Eve is taking instruction from one of the creatures. <laughs> That's the history of mankind, however, right? As Paul puts it in Romans 1, we leave God and leave off worshiping him. And what happens? We will worship something and we worship and serve the created thing rather than the creator himself. That's not what we were made for. It's not what Eve and Adam were made for. But here she is already taking instruction from 
a serpent. And so then Satan asks her a question. Verse 2. He says to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He asks a question that's designed to call into question God's goodness to them. Has God actually said, did he really say, you shall not eat of any tree? Well, no, he had never said that. And Satan knows that. He knows that, but he's trying to insinuate. He's trying to get her suspicious that maybe God hasn't been that generous with her after all. I mean, this is no genuine inquiry, you know, as to the exact nature of God's command. This is not some Fox News reporter, you know, who wants to be fair and balanced saying, well, uh, just the facts, ma'am, just give us the facts. What exactly did God say? That is not what's happening. It's an insinuation. He's planting a suspicion that God has been holding out on them what is good for them. And he wants her to think, yeah, God, he's mean, he's tight, he's miserly. And so uh, he plants that suspicion. Is that what God's like? No, of course not. And what had God said? God had said, you may eat freely to your heart's content of every tree in the garden, except for one. But all of the other ones have at it, God said. And they were beautiful and they were good for food. So what's going on here? The serpent is implying that God has withheld every tree from them to cast doubt on God. And it's an attempt to undermine God's authority in their lives. They'll question his goodness and his wisdom, and therefore they won't want to pay attention to what he has to say, right? Because appreciating the goodness and wisdom of God is necessary. It's necessary. It's essential to keeping the law of God. You're never going to do what God tells you to do. If you're suspicious that God has your best, in mind. You're just not going to. And so he plants that suspicion. And Satan invites her then to stand in judgment over the Lord. To determine for herself what's right and wrong. What's good. What's evil. To be God to herself. Don't listen to him. He's just holding out. You make your own determination. And so we see, we see here a, a good definition of sin. Sin is lawlessness. And Satan is telling Eve, be a law to yourself. Decide for yourself what's good. Don't listen to the Father. And so we want to say here, friends, um, that if you don't think God is good to you, that he cares for you, that he's a loving and open-handed and generous father to you, you're not listening to him. And you won't listen to him, even though you should listen to him. And I do want to say, friends, this is where, as Christians, in the midst of hard things in life and difficult life circumstances and the pains and sorrows that have come to us now because of the fall, we've got to build our confidence in God's goodness to us at the cross. You've got to recognize, as Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. How would he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He hasn't tucked behind his back his most precious gift and kept it from you. But he delivered Jesus over in death for you. He's not holding any good thing out from you that he sees as both good and wise for you. So we've got to let the cross teach us his goodness on this side of the fall. But, but look, here in the text, even in answering the serpent, almost unbelievably, notice how badly she misstates God's command. Notice how she gets it wrong. She, what does she say to him? In response, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, had God said those things? No. On the one hand, she, she shrinks the goodness of God by exaggerating the prohibition, right? She says that God said they can't eat it or even touch it. But God never said they couldn't touch it. She could have used the fruit of that tree as a bowling ball if she had wanted to. Adam and Eve could have built a tree house in that tree if they wanted to. The only thing forbidden was eating it. But she's become a legalist here. You know, taste not, taste not, touch not. God says don't do this, but really we're going to make the rule this much. We're also going to add to the word of God greater and stricter prohibitions that God has never forbidden. So she's made God out to be more restrictive than he is. And in adding to God's word, she's actually undermined God's authority, right? To make God's word more restrictive than God has given it is to really strip God of his authority to tell us what to do. And we've become a God to ourselves. And so that's what, on the one hand, what she's done, but she's also minimized the blessing of God here. God had said, you may eat freely of all the other food. Eating you may eat is the way it's put. But she doesn't emphasize that freedom they have to eat. She doesn't say eating we may eat. She doesn't. She minimizes the blessing. And where, where friends, where is Adam in this entire discussion? At verse 6, it tells us when she takes that fruit and she eats it, she turns to Adam, who is with her, and he gives, she gives him the fruit. Where's Adam? Evidently, he's right there with her. And evidently, he says nothing. Evidently, he doesn't correct Satan's lies. He doesn't correct her misunderstanding. He doesn't warn her. Or try to stop her. He doesn't rebuke her. Or the enemy. But he evidently passively watches her get deceived. And sin. And then he willingly. And knowledgeably. And willfully participates in it. They both sinned here. But Eve is deceived. Adam wasn't. His eyes are wide open. Paul makes this clear in the New Testament. It was not... Adam, who was deceived, it was Eve. Now, where did Eve get her understanding of what they could do with that tree? Did she, did she twist the command that God had passed through to her through Adam? Or had Adam actually twisted the command in passing it along to her and said, thought to himself, now, Eve, we're not supposed to eat from that tree. And also, Eve, don't even touch that tree. 
Was he the legalist? It, it's, it's, it's not clear. But in any case, his eyes are wide open. He knows he is not supposed to do this. He has not been fooled or deceived by Satan. And yet he eats. And so we see, in the first place, the offensiveness of sin. It calls into question God's goodness and God's authority. And we see a second thing in verses 4 and 5. We see, we see sin as rebellion, the rebelliousness of sin. In the, response to, in the response of the serpent in verses 4 and 5, notice that the serpent contradicts God, calling God a liar. You will not surely die, says the serpent, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He calls God a liar, God had said, dying you will die. And Satan says, you will not die. He's a liar. John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says of him this, speaking of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay? The first lie, the first doctrine ever denied was what doctrine? The doctrine of judgment. You will not be judged, he says to them. That's not the first, that's not the last time in history that doctrine has been denied. An outright bald-faced lie that God will not judge rebellion And Satan offers a reason why God had said that dying they would die and that they shouldn't eat from this tree. And the reason was what? Well, it was an appeal to pride, the pride of God. God doesn't want you to be like him is what Satan says. God is little and he's mean and he's insecure (laughs) and he's just protecting his turf. He doesn't want you to know as much as he knows. That's what Satan said to them. And Satan wants them to envy God and in pride to raise themselves up higher than God had made them. And so here's an opportunity for them to display their loyalty to God in the face of these lies. And they fail and they rebel and they eat. And we'll get to that in a moment. But it's very clear in this passage, a couple applications. It's very clear that God here is not the author of sin. God is not culpable. That he is not guilty of evil in any way. As the rest of the Bible makes clear, God is not the author of iniquity. The serpent is involved here. Satan is involved. Eve is involved. Adam is involved. They are at fault. They are guilty. God left them to the freedom of their own will and they choose rebellion. But God is not guilty of sin here. And it's also clear that Satan is telling them, you know, in order to be like God, you know what you really need to do? You need to rebel. The the way up is the way of defiance. Rebel, he says to them, and you will be happy. You will be self-fulfilled. You'll really be God-like. Isn't that what you want? then the way to get it is to rebel. And the irony of that is that what had God already made them? He had already made them God-like. 
They are the very likeness of God on the earth. They are the image of God. They represent God on the earth. Morally, they're like God. Initially, they're very good and they love what he loves and they think like he thinks. And they, 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 they were designed to do what God does. Morally speaking, they're already God-like and they have no higher privilege. And there was no higher status that they could be raised, uh, that was given to any other creature. And they would continue to enjoy the benefits of that status. Not by rebellion, but by obedience. Obedience was the way of happiness, friends. Obedience was the way of true fulfillment of what they were created for. Obedience was the way of godlikeness. And instead, the enemy wanted them to believe that rebellion is how you get all the good stuff. Rebellion brings blessing, is what he said. And if you have lived long enough, you know that it doesn't. That rebellion is the way of pain and sorrow and misery for you and for others. And so we see the rebellion of sin. And then we see in verse 6 the deceitfulness of sin. Notice here then, in verse 6, notice this temptation. Having, Having twisted the character of God, made him out to be miserly, having contradicted the word of God and called God a liar, having challenged God goodness and generosity and authority and truthfulness and having sown the seeds of unbelief and pride in Adam and Eve, now the fruit itself becomes desirable and Eve falls under its spell. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. It's what John warns us about in 1 John chapter 2. She saw it, she desired it, she took it, and she ate it. What does John tell us in 1 John 2? Do not love the world, he says. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the, the boastful pride of life, that's not from the Father, but that's from the world. There's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three things. And we see that here with Eve. She thought it was good for food. That's the the lust of the flesh. She craved it. And she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. That's the pride of life. And that's how temptation works for us too. Our sinful nature craves something forbidden. Or something good, but immoderately we crave it. Inappropriately we long for it. And our eyes see it as pleasing and appealing. And we desire it. And our pride, our pride imagines that by getting it, it will improve us. It will strengthen us. It will satisfy us. That it will meet our needs. And so we see this kind of pattern of sin. She listens to another creature instead of to her creator. She follows her own impressions instead of God's instructions. She makes self-fulfillment her goal and places that above obedience to God. Does any of that sound familiar? Any of that sound like you? Do what your heart tells you to do, people say. Oh, please. 
Half of you wouldn't exist if I did what my heart tells me to do at times. Not half of you, but uh, more than half my family. And I love you all. That's true in your family too. Don't do what your heart tells you to do. So, um, so here it is. So it's deceitful. It promises them pleasure. It promises them life. It promises them satisfaction. And what does it do? It brings them shame and death. Notice, notice in the last place the consequences here in verse 7. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What's going on here? Satan promised them that the knowledge of good and evil is what they would receive and what they got was shame. And it was an old bait and switch. He put a worm on the hook of the line and he covered the hook. And they didn't know how bad it was going to be until it was too late and the hook was in their mouth and they were caught. And he promised here on the one hand that they wouldn't die, right? God had promised they would die, dying you will die. And Satan said you will not die and you have to ask the question, well, which is it? They did die or they didn't die? And I think the answer to that is is this, that God had said dying you will die and they did. They did. They died spiritually they, they lost communion with God and they became dead in their souls in their transgressions and sins, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. They lost the enjoyment of God. They, they, they lost fellowship with God and the pleasure of walking with God in a right relationship with God. They died spiritually. And, and, and this immediate spiritual death and separation from the blessing of God set in motion the process of decay and degeneration that would result in their physical death, and if not corrected or if they were not rescued from it, would end up in eternal and everlasting spiritual death, banished from the presence of the Lord and his favor forever. And as uh, Barnhouse put it, the wreckage of earth and a million billion graves attest that God is true. And Satan is a liar. But their actions not only brought death, they brought shame. And they felt bad, they felt dirty, they felt embarrassed, they felt fearful and scared. And they wanted to hide, and they wanted to cover up, and they wanted not to be seen. And when it says that they were naked and ashamed, that's in direct contrast to just just when they got married, they had been naked and unashamed. And to be naked in the Hebrew mentality is to be exposed, and it is a shameful thing. And they began to feel the weight of that. They felt vulnerable, and they felt bad. And sadly, the consequences of their first sin did not stop with them. And here's where we want to close, friends. This isn't just about Adam and Eve. As Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 puts it, it makes painfully clear what Adam did, he did as the representative of all humanity. And his choices and his actions have affected us all. If you go over to Romans chapter 5 verse 12, notice Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. And what he means by all sinned is 
all sinned in Adam, in the one man's sin. In Adam we all fell. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, he says. One man's trespass led to condemnation for all. When Adam fell, we fell with him and in him, and we died spiritually, and that death became our inheritance. We are guilty in him. And to be sure, to that guilt of that first sin, that original sin, we have added a whole multitude of our own rebellions and sins, actually done in our thoughts and deeds in our own life, no doubt. But these only confirm the reality that we are born from the womb with a heart that is wicked and oriented toward God, or away from God. And what's going to fix that? What's going to fix that? Fig leaves? <laughs> it, was, it was their attempt at covering their shame and fixing their problem, and it was totally inadequate. They could not do for themselves what needed to be done. But as my old pastor pointed out, it's the first example of works righteousness to be found in the Bible. By their own work, they sought to cover their own deed and hide it to fix their own problem. And it's wholly inadequate. But what we cannot do for ourselves, God does for his people. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so the Bible is telling you, Jesus, the last Adam, this is good news, passes the test that Adam failed, and he merits by his obedience and by his death on the cross, he merits pardon for his people and acceptance before the face of God as righteous in God's sight because his righteousness is credited to his people. And we are, as it were, clothed, not in fig leaves that are worthless, but clothed in the righteous robes of Christ's perfection. And that, friends, restores us to life with the promise of everlasting spiritual blessing in the favorable presence of God forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We bless you. You're so good. You're generous. And we, we acknowledge that it has always been your plan to send the Savior and to redeem us even to a more favorable position than Adam had, where one day we will be with you and there won't even be the possibility of falling out of favor with you when we are with you in heaven itself. Because right now in Christ, there is no possibility of falling out of favor with you for those who have been justified. We bless you and thank you for Jesus. Help us to rest in him, to delight in him, and to love what he loves and to do what he commands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.